Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest again this week is Oliver Soden, the author of an amazing new book titled Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. Critics have hailed this book as a brilliant new biography, illuminating, sympathetic, and riveting, as well as a captivating biography by an emerging literary star. This is the third part of our conversation, and if you missed the first two episodes, you may want to catch up with those before listening to this one. Here we go. Welcome back, Oliver Soden. Since last time we talked, I understand that you've made your West End debut. Yes. Yes, that was true. Last week, there was a reconstruction of Coward's first review, London Calling, a hundred years and a month on from the premiere in the very same theatre in the West End. It was a little bit frightening for a non-professional actor to go on stage and talk about Coward to a sold-out audience, but it went terribly well. And the best thing was that the actual material, the sketches that Coward wrote, which I had only ever read on the page, stood up so well. They were so so funny, especially in the hands of actors such as Damien Lewis and Indira Varma. But it was a great afternoon. 
The music was presented as well, yes. Was it the whole show or was it sort of a capsule version? Oh, much shortened. I mean, the thing about these reviews is that they were well over three hours. You know, they were huge evenings. We only had an hour before Andrew Scott was itching to come onto the set and perform his one-man show of Uncle Vanya. So we had to clear out pretty quick. So we got edited highlights and the most famous, most enduring songs, Parisian Piero, the most famous, really. I looked around for some video, but I couldn't find anything. Is there any chance that we're going to get to see any of this? I don't. I fear not for various complicated copyright reasons, but maybe it will happen again. It was a great success. So at the end of our previous episode, Noel was in New York for the American premiere of Bittersweet, just as the stock market came crashing down. And I love that quote you include in your book where he says, people were hurling themselves off the buildings like confetti. Yes, there's a certain dramatic license on Coward's part there, because although that was the rumour that bankers were sort of falling from the top floors of skyscrapers, it seems that that was something of an exaggeration and that that didn't entirely happen. But New York on the day of the Wall Street crash, and to a lesser extent Boston, was a rather terrifying place to be with the news sort of being called down the avenues and businessmen selling off their Rolls Royces for ready cash and sleeping the night in gymnasia and on because they didn't want to go home and miss any of the news. It's amazing how that urban legend has survived, but it's so evocative of what was going on at the time. But Noel's own money was safe because of the investments that Jack Wilson had made. Yes, um, the phrase in the letter is that Jack had invested all of Coward's money, which was considerable by that stage, in gold-plated securities. And somehow he managed not to lose anything, which gave him a trust in Jack Wilson's financial acumen that was to get him into hot water a decade or so later. So it had its damage, this sense that Wilson knew exactly what he was doing. But even before this, don't you include a letter or maybe it was a poem that he wrote to Jack Wilson indicating that he already knew that Jack Wilson was siphoning money away? Yes. Yes, it is a poem written about and to Jack Wilson. And as so often, Coward is disguising some quite serious and unhappy accusations within a jokey, rhyming couplet. He calls Wilson a predatory louse stealing money from Popper's house. Popper was Wilson's nickname for Coward. Whether or not it's sort of real embezzlement or simply Wilson, who would not have necessarily had a particularly lucrative career without Coward's own talent and earning power, simply using Coward's money as if they were a single financial unit and enjoying quite a luxurious life off Coward's earnings. That's quite hard to know. But I think Wilson let Coward's money run through his fingers like water, certainly. It's rather hard to know what to think about Jack Wilson. Certainly, he ends up having a substantial career of his own, so he must have had some real talent. Yeah, that's true, as a producer and as a director. I mean, actually, a stage director of some quite notable performances, but also of the plays that eventually become rivals to Coward's own comedies. So he starts working on plays by Terence Rattigan, Christopher Fry, just at a time when Coward, this is later, after the Second World War, is going out of fashion so this causes friction when the storm clouds are riding through a winter sky sail away sail away when the love light is fading in your sweetheart's eye sail away sail away when you feel your sun is all 
weakest rated rung. Why should you prolong your stay? When the wind and the weather blow your dreams sky high, sail away, sail away, sail away. Let's talk a little bit about travel, because quite famously throughout his life, Coward would escape on these long journeys around the world, sometimes even by himself. Yeah. Why do you think he was drawn to this, and what does it tell us about Coward? Well, I think of Noel Coward as somebody, in a way, perpetually in flight, both literally and metaphorically, in flight in some ways from love and affection, which he believes to be something ephemeral and painful, in flight from failure, in flight from poverty. And flight for him is a means of escape from success as well. And his inveterate reaction to all the tumult of critical praise or critical censure, depending on which way the balance of the scales has fallen, is to get Get on a ship. It's a line in his play Designed for Living. Just get on a ship, somebody says. The gay couple in that play do spend, as it were, the interval between act two and three, traveling the world as a sort of double act. And I think it's a fear for Coward of what he might find within himself if he ever stopped moving for long enough to be deeply introspective. So there is a sense of a man fleeing not only what the world has to say about him and offer him, but fleeing his own nervous depressive character as well, never stopping for a moment that might permit deep introspection, which is not really his way. Although you would think days and weeks on a ship would give you nothing to do, but... Yeah, this is true. That's a very good point. And indeed, some of his worst depressive periods where he became, I would argue, close to suicidal do happen on these long voyages at sea, which are possibly intended to rinse the brain clean of dust and depression, but of course actually mean that he's not being given the distraction that he might need. But then the solitude, but also the camaraderie of ship life, especially when he's on a naval ship and there was no place he preferred to be than on a naval ship, also give Coward what he called some of the happiest times in his life. And there is a sense in which that curious no man's land of life at sea, where what goes on on the ship stays on the ship, really is when he begins to feel at his most free, at his most liberated. We know that the Navy or at least naval life was a refuge for homosexuals away from the censure of police and society and so on went on dry land. But there's also a sense that ship life provides for Coward a sort of theatre in miniature. All the hierarchy of ship life is oddly comparable to the stalls and the circle and the upper circle. It has its costume, it has its rituals, it has cocoa on the deck with the captain at 9pm. It's almost a sort of boarding school dormitory life. And there's something in the safety of that routine that I think he finds quite appealing. And of course, it appealed to Gilbert and Sullivan, it appeared to Cole Porter. There is a sense that life at sea has this curious camp theatre to it that's able to link the nautical with the naughty, and he enjoys all of that. So he embarks on one of these trips for Asia in 1930. Yes. And possibly because of the friction with Jack Wilson, he takes Jeffrey Amherst along with him as a traveling companion. 
Yeah. Who was Jeffrey Amherst? Jeffrey Amherst had been his travelling companion for most of the 1920s. Amherst was a, a big mogul in the airlines eventually, but he was also aristocratic and he'd served in the First World War. He was everything that Coward wasn't. He was blonde and upper class and he'd seen active service in the trenches. He may have been homosexual, it may have been an affair, but I'm inclined to think not because Amherst lived right on into his 90s at a time when it would have been perfectly possible to speak quite openly when homosexuality was legalized, when Coward had eventually died about any kind of affair. And he never did, even to my great predecessor, Philip Hall, who interviewed him for the last Coward biography. So I'm tentative. I think it was a sort of homosocial friendship, but they made good traveling companions. And of course, Amherst had lots of money, which helped, but then so did Coward by that time. These trips were quite productive for Coward. He would write plays and songs while traveling, and this one in particular was incredibly productive. Yes, Amherst fell really quite seriously ill with amoebic dysentery, which meant that Coward had long periods to fill for his own amusement. And he does this in two ways. One, he actually acts. He performs with a local touring theatre company. Among the new recruits, a, a then young and unknown John Mills, who would go on to win Oscars and so on. And he plays the role of Raleigh, which is a large role in the First World War trenches play Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff in a theatre in Singapore, which is an astonishing thing for him to do when you think about it. And he learned with his near-photographic memory this vast number of lines in all of about a day or two days. And the other thing he did was to write. And when he had flu himself, he sat in a hotel over three or four days and by hand in pencil wrote Private Lives, which is now his most imperishable comedy. Rather an astonishing thing to do, although I should say that I think writing plays for Coward was a very different thing to writing them down. So I'm not saying that he wrote Private Lives in four days. I'm saying he wrote it down in four days after, I would argue, many months, possibly many years of letting it coalesce. Coward did a lot of drafting, but I think he had the kind of mind that allowed him to draft and read draft in his head on the wings of the morning with your own true love don't go away oliver and i will be back with more conversation right after this quick break hi this is david armstrong and even here in seattle warmer sunnier days are on their way so it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with factors no prep no mess meals thanks to factors menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus keto or my favorite vegetarian factors fresh never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes so no matter how busy you are you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. 
With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And of course, Private Lives, as you said, has become his most famous and most produced play, even though at the time... Although they found it to be dazzling and delectable, you quote one of them as saying that he didn't think private lives would survive a decade. Yes, it's interesting how Coward's plays have had to mature in order to reveal depth and truth that not only critics, but even the author himself somehow hadn't seen were there. There's a curious sense in which Coward's plays are more mature than Coward himself, if that's possible. And after writing the script, he sends it to Gertrude Lawrence from the hotel in the Far East saying, you know, it's utterly trivial, but it might be quite fun to play. And most of the critics agreed with him, certainly. And yet now we find great depth in it. Yes. I mean, why should that be? I think because of changing attitudes to Coward, different ways of performing his work. Coward in 1930, which is when Private Lives eventually opens in the West End, is thought by the critics, but also by the intellectual intelligentsia, such as the Bloomsbury Group, to be a talented but frothy purveyor of cheap theatrical tricks that don't last any longer than the two hours spent in the theatre. And there's a way in which the actors, even Coward and Gertrude Lawrence, collude with that and fell for their own reputation. It took actors with a whole new, as it were, Stanislavskian emotional truth, as opposed to Coward's own quickfire, quicksilver comic technique to reveal what he'd actually put in the play. I think it's simply a case of standing further off from the script gives us a clearer view of the whole thing. Also, the play has escaped from the style of Coward himself, which is what all Coward's plays have had to do. Many playwrights don't fully understand what they wrote. Yeah, that may be so. There's a wonderful way in which later performances can give back to the author the play that was written, as it were, by their subconscious rather than by them. And sometimes critics are stupid. You know, let's not, let's not dismiss that as an argument. What are you doing here? I'm on my honeymoon. Very interesting. So am I. I hope you're enjoying it. It, it hasn't started yet. Neither is mine. Are you happy? Perfectly. Good. Are you? Ecstatically. What's she like? Hair. Very pretty. Plays the piano beautifully. Very comfortable. How's yours? I'd rather not discuss it. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. You'll probably come popping out in a minute and I shall see for myself. Have you known her long? About four months. We met on a house party in Norfolk. Very flat in Norfolk. 
no need to be unpleasant. There was no reflection on her, unless, of course, she made it better. Your voice takes on an acid quality every time you mention her. I swear I'll never mention her again. Good. Now keep off yours. Thank you. Not at all. That orchestra seems to have a remarkably small repertoire. Strange how potent cheap music is. Someday I'll find you Moonlight behind you had a sweet voice, Amanda. Thank you. What exactly were you remembering at that moment? Lots of things. So was I. What fools we were to ruin it all. What utter, utter fools. We were so ridiculously over in love. And yet, here we are starting off with two quite different people, in love all over again, aren't we? No. We're not in love all over again, and you know it. Good night, Amanda. Well, yet don't leave me. We won't talk about ourselves anymore. Talk about outside things, anything. I'll stay with me till I pull myself together. Very well. What have you been doing lately, during these last years? I, I went around the world, you know, after... Yes, yes, of course I know. How was it? The world? Yes. Very enjoyable. China must be very interesting. Very big China. And Japan? That is small. Did you eat shark's fins and take your shoes off and use chopsticks and everything? Practically everything. And India? The burning gars or ghats or whatever they are and the Taj Mahal. How was the Taj Mahal? Unbelievable. A sort of dream. That was the moonlight, I expect. Of course, you saw it in the moonlight. Yes. Moonlight can be cruelly deceptive. And it didn't look like a biscuit box, did it? You know, I've, I've always felt that it might. Darling, I do love you so. I do hope you met a sacred elephant. There's Lynn Twite, I believe, it's very, very sweet. I've never loved anybody else for an instant. <laughs> and you love me too, don't you? There isn't any doubt about it anywhere, is there? No. No doubt anywhere. You're looking very lovely in this damned moonlight, Amanda. Your skin is clear and cool and your eyes are shining. And you're growing lovelier and lovelier every second as I look at you. You don't hold any mystery for me, darling. Do you mind? There isn't a particle of you that I don't know, remember, and want. I'm glad, my sweet. More than any desire in the world, deep down in my deepest heart, I want you back again. Please. Don't. Don't say anymore. You're making me cry so good.
What is it about Private Lives that you think audiences still connect with so strongly? Oh, many things. The sheer perfection of its machinery, of its architecture, the fact that here is a playwright who within 40 minutes, restricting his two lead characters to no more than 12 feet of stage, can manage to reunite a divorced couple and allow them to fall back in love with one another and elope once again, leaving behind their new partners. I mean, that is a dazzling and delectable sleight of hand and an architect textual sleight of hand. It's deeply funny. I mean, the sheer comedy of the dialogue is superb. The way in which, and this is something Alan Rickman said of the play when he starred in it, and I think it's very profound. I only heard this recently, so it's not in the book. The way in which each act is different. The first act is a Noel Coward comedy. The second act is a play by Chekhov, and the third act is a Fado farce. So it has this amazing theatrical variety. But then it also, in its comedy, has something deeply tragic to say about a couple who can't live with or without each other. It splits love through a kind of prism into its constituent parts of domestic comfort and affection, of lacerating sexual passion, and of mature love as opposed to the first flush of something new. And it dares to say that possibly it's very tricky to combine all those facets in one relationship. And it says all those things while making you laugh, which is another sleight of hand in itself. And I suppose the day dangerous conclusion as to why it still speaks to us today is that it presents us with two modes of living and loving. And one is moral and conscientious and safe and calm and comforting. And one is amoral and violent and lacerating and cruel and funny and sexy. And it's the second of those two things which is on the side of life even when it's not necessarily on the side of mere goodness, kindness, niceness, the thing that Coward hated above all. Yeah, respectability, indeed. Social convention. He gives, as it were, the devil not only the best tunes, but the funniest tunes, the liveliest, most appealing tunes. So it's a dangerous play. And that has become more dangerous with changing attitudes. But of course, danger and risk is deeply appealing. And now, from the vantage point of 2023, it's dangerous too in its portrayal of a relationship that combines sex with violence. Violence initiated by the woman upon the man, but of course wrought by a man upon a woman, deeply uncomfortable to watch. There's always a question as to how seriously you play it, how comic the violence can be. Can you even say, as some productions have not, a line such as, quote, women should be struck regularly like gongs, unquote. Does Coward mean it? Does his character Elliot mean it? All these things tumbling around in 2023 that weren't necessarily tumbling around in 1930. It was the discussion of atheism that really shocked its contemporary audiences more than smashing a record over somebody else's head. I especially enjoyed your analysis of how, as you say, the script is punctuated with rhythm rather than grammar. What exactly do you mean by that? I mean that the play has a sound world and an acoustic. And if you hear a performance of it, even a performance not necessarily given with Coward's immensely staccato delivery, it's a script fashioned of percussive monosyllables that could be by nobody else. It's not luxuriant lyrical writing. This is a writer who, instead of saying, for example, as white as lint, he says lint white. And the difference between that lovely 
lovely bouncing first example and that sharp two-syllable crisp second example is the difference between a mediocre playwright and what Noel Coward can do with comic dialogue. It is to be performed in a way, I would argue, like a musical score. And you come across a comma and what it means is a quaver rest in the delivery, thank you very much, which means that there aren't as many, perhaps, in the script as syntax would necessarily require because you've got to power through in this machine gun fire of Coward's patter and badinage and banter. So when you hit a full stop or a comma, those those pauses, those breaths do an awful lot of work for you. The other notation Coward gives is the question mark. If you look through a Coward script, you'll find that an awful lot of his lines are questions, but they are almost always unanswered questions. And in fact, usually they're answered with another question. I think the great inheritor of this technique is Tom Stoppard in his play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in that play have a long game where they ask each other questions that can be answered only by another question. Now, this also adds to the sound world. It means that you are constantly asking a question. You are constantly giving that rising motif, which people now give even when they're not answering or asking questions, but which in Coward actually has a purpose and a point. And it means that his lines are they don't attract, they repel one another like opposite magnetic poles. And it means that the characters are very often speaking at right angles to one another. So it enacts the way they're so rarely in union. And of course, the greatest unanswered question in Private Lives and in other plays by Coward is, do you love me? That's the question that his characters find it very difficult to answer. I love the final sentence of the paragraph where you talk about all of that. Would you please read that to us? I will. Noel's ear was attuned to his era, and the contours of the writing capture the sound and diction of the jazz age, the bang and rattle of the motor car as it drove over the remnants of a bygone world. Well, actually, as I read it, it sounds a little purple prose to me, but I did want to convey the way he is an antenna for the sound of the 20s, and the way each decade has a sound, the way the 20s were full of newly disembodied voices via the telephone and the broadcasting of the wireless and the arrival of the motor car and the drills as the skyscrapers were built up into the sky. You know, not just jazz, but a mechanical sound. The modern world. Exactly, exactly. Of course, he wrote this play specifically for himself and Gertrude Lawrence to star in, and then he wrote that whole cycle of plays tonight at 830 for the two of them to do together. And Gertrude Lawrence was obviously one of the great stars of the era, but she's kind of hard for us to latch onto today. Have you been able to figure out exactly what it was about Gertrude Lawrence that made Noel Coward so much want to share the stage with her? I think what is interesting is that actually I believe, especially as he got older, he was an actor of emotional truth. But of course, he was an actor of impeccable, rigorous, disciplined technique. And she, by contrast, as far as one can stop the ephemerality of performance sort of running through one's fingers, was an actor of idiosyncrasy and gut instinct, capable of changing her performance from night to night. Oddly, I think the contemporary power 
parallel would be that Coward was an actor such as Maggie Smith, you know, supreme laying out of emotional truth through, not in spite of, but through brilliant comic technique and physical clowning and disciplined performance. Whereas Gertrude Lawrence was much more, as I gather and read, an actress such as Vanessa Redgrave now is, who is sort of wild and wayward and ill-disciplined and instinctive and wonderful. But what I'm trying to describe is, I think it made it hell to perform, but thrilling to watch, a coming together of two totally distinct and different and in fact contrary acting styles. And that coming together can be electric. I've seen examples of it, you know, a century on. And much more interesting than Coward simply finding a female actor such as Beatrice Lilly, who was the great star of his review, who performed in a very similar way to him. Of course, this meant that there were some nights where he hated what she did and they came to blows and fistfights in the wings. And I think theirs was a relationship rather like Amanda and Elliot in Private Lives that expressed its deep affection and indeed love through quarrel. It's very difficult to get a handle on Noel and Gertie as the relationship has come to be known, partly because I think a lot of this is Coward's own PR. And something that interested me is that nobody called Gertrude Lawrence Gertie. Her friends called her Gertrude or G. It's very much part of the packaging. But the other thing is that they only work together actually three times as adults, London Calling, The Review, Private Lives, Tonight at 8.30... You can read one biography and come to the conclusion that they were so close they may even have been lovers in some tentative, unsuccessful way. You can read another biography and discover that they hated each other and weren't remotely close and it was only a rather frosty technical relationship. So I try to pitch my own flag somewhere between those two extremes. And clearly at moments it was a deeply important and significant friendship. And then at others, especially when she went on to marry a man that Coward did not much like, it was much much more cold, argumentative, distant. Much later, he wrote a very bad play called South Sea Bubble for her that she did not want to do and didn't do. And then, of course, she dies far too young in the 50s and he blots the paper. He writes his obituary for the Times on with tears and is deeply, deeply regretful that he hadn't not necessarily mended things because I don't think it was broken, but seen her as much as he might have done in her last years. It has a sad end, but is an important relationship. But then, of course, he worked with an actress such as Celia Johnson, as much if not more, three films and plays later on. But it's amazing how the beam has alit upon Gertrude Lawrence as being his great muse. But she's one of many in some ways. It is amazing how legendary that partnership has become without any film or video or tangible evidence of what that partnership was like. The evidence that does exist, I suppose, are the photographs and they knew how to pose so well for the photographs. I'm sure some listeners will have seen them. They look almost like two halves of the same androgynous soul. They're mirror images of one another with their cigarette holders flourished like stilettos or daggers rather than cigarettes. So they knew very well how to do that publicity. And of course, she was a great musical artist. She was known primarily as a singer. And the variety of all the different one-act plays that he brought together under that banner of Tonight at 8.30 meant that she and he could show off everything they could do. They could dance, they could 
sing, they could act in comedy, they could actually act in tragedy. The thing I would love to have seen is that we all know Brief Encounter and Celia Johnson is embedded in our memory as Laura, but that was a part created on the stage by Gertrude Lawrence. But we're back to this point that the one thing she could not do was ordinary. And there's a wonderful story Coward tells of not being able to make Gertrude Lawrence look like the plain, middle-class, ordinary, suburban woman required of that play and eventually film. And he only solved it by buying her clothes that were one size too big. But she clearly had that dazzle that she couldn't turn off. Whereas Celia Johnson, although she is dazzling, dazzles in an altogether more subterranean, subtle, implicit, internal way. Lawrence is also puzzling because, as you say, she was primarily known as a musical star. And yet when you hear her recordings, she doesn't sound all that great. And even the composers she worked with would often talk about her pitch issues. But you put her on stage and they didn't want anybody else to sing their songs. Yes, it's not unlike Judy Dench singing in Sondheim in a way, although Gertrude Lawrence has more of a soprano voice. But it's the way the song is acted in context, the way it is put across. Although it was put to me the other day, and I was much persuaded by this, that the technique of recording in the 20s and 30s was so new that the technology was so basic what survives in the recording of Noel and Gertie is not what they would have done on stage. They would have been deeply suspicious of the microphone. It would have required a whole new technique that was slower, crisper, just in the way we hear BBC broadcast voices from the 20s and 30s, and they sound impossibly distant, but of course do not stand for the way people actually spoke to one another at the period. In a way, I think we have a slightly askew sense of what they were actually like as performers, but then this is the difficulty of writing about theatre. What is marvellous is those recordings of private lives that they did. Yes, but again, I'd be interested to know if that is a fair picture of what they actually did on the stage with an audience in a much larger theatre. And that was filmed, but nothing survives, which is sad. Heartbreaking. Private Lives is a major hit in London and on Broadway. Yeah. Noel is at the top of his game, and his relationship with Jack Wilson seems to be reinvigorated at this time. They live together, they buy a weekend house together in Connecticut. Their relationship is very public to a certain extent. How does that change as we move further into the 1930s? Well, Private Lives catches the world on a cusp where the roar of the 20s withers into the Great Depression and unemployment of the 1930s. One thing that happens, and I think it is often the case that economic decline goes hand in hand with a less tolerant society, is gay men become a sort of scapegoat. There is an idea that homosexuality is associated with the extravagance of 1920s high life, the breakup of the family unit. In the face of unemployment, there's a sense that it's their fault, the economic downturn, that they lived this wild, promiscuous, extravagant high life in the 20s and spent all the money, and that they imperiled the family unit. And the police raids on the nightclubs, the gay nightclubs and the nightlife where gay life had in some ways flourished, in some ways, over the 20s, start to increase in frequency and severity and all those inklings of something more tolerant, those glimmers of gay rights 
rights organizations and instantly closed down. So it becomes, in a way, much more difficult for Noel and Jack Wilson. Although, then again, it's fascinating how often they were photographed arm in arm, as it were, living in plain sight. But then it was much more normal for, as it were, homosocial friendships to be physically affectionate. I mean, all of Dickens' heroes, like David Copperfield, are forever walking arm in arm down the road with other men. And I'm not sure that that would have been greeted with all that much shock. It is a time that is becoming more dangerous for them to live in anything like openness. And eventually, Jack Wilson marries in the 1930s, possibly as a disguise, although actually, well, definitely as a disguise in some ways, and it offers his Russian wife a passport and a means of getting on in America. She's a white Russian exile from the revolution. But it was an affectionate marriage, even if it wasn't a sexual one. And Coward somehow manages to survive this marriage. Indeed, he was best man at the wedding and he was a friend with Jack Wilson's wife. So there's a way always in which Coward greets the breakup of his own relationships when the man usually goes off to live with a woman with something like relief because it means the pain of the initial burning passion has faded and he can just be friends, which is a rather calmer state of affairs for him. This relationship that Jack Wilson has with his wife How does that begin? I guess I'm trying to understand the transition between his relationship with Coward and this idea that now he's going to get married. Yes. I mean, the relationship with Coward has never been sexually faithful, certainly not on Jack Wilson's side. And I think by the time he meets Natasha Paley, the woman he married, or Natalia, her Russian name, the relationship had probably already become not merely business associates, but a non-sexual one. How Wilson met Paley, I I'm not sure I ever found out, although she had worked as an actress and a model, and I think their paths had crossed on Broadway. I mean, I'm guessing here, but there's a sense, although it's interesting that Coward himself never does this, I think there must be a sense in which Wilson is allotted a certain social status and acceptability by having a wife. I don't know whether she had money. I suspect being an exile from the revolution, I imagine not. And Wilson himself was earning considerably by this time. It's so ill-chronicled, it's very hard to pick apart what actually went on until you suddenly realise that there is Coward giving away his ex-lover to another woman. But then Coward worked very well in triangles. He's a good third in those sort of relationships. Later in his life, as you talk about later in your book, Coward will write a play as sort of a tribute to those kinds of wives. Yes, Yes, indeed. His last major play, A Song at Twilight, which is in a triptych called Sweet in Three Keys, which is staged with him acting in all three in the mid-60s, the last performance he gave on the stage. And the main play, A Song at Twilight, is about a gay man who has married for a disguise. And yet, with intense humanity, Coward makes the wife, the disguise, a figure of great dignity and love and support and truth and of of course, you look through Coward's social circle and indeed the world of the theatre at that time. Gay men such as Michael Redgrave, the actor, Cole Porter, Jack Wilson, Somerset Maugham, all of whom had married women who were not merely beards, as the phrase was, of disguise, but women who actually maintained deeply loving relationships, even if platonic ones, with these men. Okay, Somerset Maugham's marriage ended in a very acrimonious divorce, but Coward was on Siri more 
Storm, his wife's side. And I love the dignity that he affords these women and the dignity that he affords what were called mariage blanche, you know, the sexless marriages. It's very interesting to unpick all these layers and triangles. Okay, now help us appreciate something else that's hard to grasp, and that's this major theatrical event of the 1930s called Cavalcade. Yeah. Critics called it one of the greatest stage successes of this generation. Even George Bernard Shaw called it Coward's claim to historical permanence. Yeah. How wrong can you get? Because it's the most impermanent thing that Coward did. It's very hard to even work out, although there are photographs, quite what it was, because although the script is published, it's not, unusually for Coward, a play about words. It was designed for theatrical spectacle. Indeed, I think that spectacle was designed to show that the theatre could offer astonishing spectacle, even as film was trying to sort of steal audiences away. It's really a pageant. And pageants, of course, had been a hugely important part of community theatre and British theatrical life since about the turn of the century, with huge casts and dazzling visual spectacle and so on. And it's a pageant set roughly across the span of Coward's own life, 1900 to 1930. It hooks the story of two families, an upper-class family and their servants, the family who work for them as servants, across that theatrical span linked to the great events, the sinking of the Titanic, the death of Queen Victoria, the general strike. Thousands of extras, the Titanic on the stage, London omnibuses on the stage, all the changing musical highlights of the different eras, the Edwardian parlour songs, the beach seaside songs, the operettas, the jazz and blues that were coming in in the 20s. And it has its tragedies in that you see soldiers marching off to war and you see the younger son of the family who are the main characters be killed. Impossible really to think about what it must have looked like. I mean, untold budgets. I suppose the most sensationally staged musicals would be the best modern parallel, although there's something of Olympic opening ceremonies, I think, to what Coward did as well, when you think of all the extras and the spectacle and so on. And I think there's a socially interesting thing here in that class contrast, the upper class, especially in England, harder perhaps to understand in America, and it didn't ever run in America. But that contrast between the upper class and the lower class, and that bubble of class warfare under the surface. And there's a cross-class marriage as well, which was daring for 1930. But what Cavalcade was, for really the first time explicitly in Coward's work, was patriotic. He catches that shift in the wind away from the radicalism of the 20s. And it ends with the national anthem and the Union Jack waving above the stage. And it's quite interesting. It's a time where a lot of the radical modernists of the 20s, writers such as Evelyn Waugh, T.S. Eliot, are trying to fill the emptiness at the heart of 20s life, having been an epitome of sort of 20s radicalism. And Eliot and Waugh both turn to religion. And Coward, who has no truck with religion of any kind, fills the hole with patriotism. That's, in a way, what offers him meaning. But it's not an uncomplicated patriotism. I don't think it's merely a tub-thumping patriotism. I think Cavalcade showed the dangers of war, the loss of war, the grief of war. I think it was an attempt, really, to be pacifist and patriotic at the same time, to show that the two things were not mutually exclusive. And it had this fascinating penultimate scene, which was called Expressionist by a number of the 
contemporary critics. And again, is impossible to recreate really apart from looking at photographs, but was theatrically very daring. It was chaos. That was the name of the scene. It tried to hold a mirror up to the chaos of contemporary society. And what you saw as a member of the audience all at the same time was a scene in the nightclub where someone is singing what is still a famous song of Coward's 20th century blues, which is a song of sheer nihilist meaninglessness and bleakness and cynicism. What is there to strive for, to love or keep alive for? Say, hey, hey, call it a day. And while that was going on, sirens blared and airplanes or the sound of them soared above the stage and the stage was strafed with searchlights and so-called incurables from the First World War sat downstage weaving baskets in sheer mental distress. Communists ranted. Everything was chaos. And then this mess shifted into the national anthem, which Cavalcade offered as one potential answer to the questions posed in that song. What is there to strive for, love or keep alive for? Well, maybe, just maybe, king and country. And this was taken as a betrayal on Coward's part from some of the more left-leaning radical contemporaries who thought that he had moved into fascism and Daily Mail and all of that. But it's a, it's a very nuanced account of pacifism, I think, and done with, as I say, great theatrical radicalism. It's back to Coward as a sort of radical conservative figure, I think. It's so interesting, this whole part of the book, and this comes up at other times during his career, that at the same time that he's sort of this avant-garde expressionist artist, yeah. he appears to be conservative... Yeah. Although I think you tell us that he regretted having the Union Jack, the British flag on the stage at the end. Yeah. Although he didn't take it out. No, he never took it out. And of course, Coward was perfectly capable of shifting his mindset to patriotism because it made a good theatrical ending. I mean, in a way. And of course, Cavalcade made him a lot of money, which a lot of his critics, and he had some severe and savage criticism to contend with in the 30s by radical intellectuals who thought he had shifted to the right, as I say, and betrayed them. Nevertheless, it's interesting how, as with T.S. Eliot, who was also politically of the right, how there is a way, Coward proves it, of being being conservative and radical, of being patriotic and pacifist, and of doing all this without unnuanced, tub-thumping, sort of Colonel Blimp preaching. But it is hard to untangle the different strands of the way the angry young man of the 1920s begins to age into something much more complicated. He takes another long trip with Jeffrey Amherst to South America, where he writes Design for Living. But before that can be produced, he goes back to London and opens a new review for Charles Cochran, Words and Music. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. The Japanese don't care to, the Chinese wouldn't dare to. Hindus and Argentines sleep firmly from 12 to 1. But Englishmen deter stars, see stars. In the Philippines, they have lovely screens to protect you from the glare. In the Malay states, there are hats like plates which the Britishers won't wear. At 12 noon, the natives swoon and no further work is done. But mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. 
Yeah, it's one of the least successful of the reviews. In fact, it's really the last wholly new review, bar a, a revival in America, that he works on. And again, it's this point of the cusp. Coward is good at transition, societal transition, the 20s shifting into the 30s. You know, 1932 saw the very last party of the bright young things. And words and music is all about the party being over. It's where the song The Party's Over Now comes from. But it also wasn't a huge commercial success, but it lacked real theatrical spectacle. It was done on a rather simpler scale, which perhaps didn't quite endear it to audiences. But I think it's a fascinating review for this very reason, that it charts the end of something. And it introduces some of his most famous songs, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, yeah. and Mad About the Boy. Yes, yeah. I'm fascinated by that song because although we usually hear it as a solo, that's not how it was conceived or performed in its original conception. No. Note the recurrence of the word madness as well. Mad dogs and Englishmen, mad about the boy. This notion of madness and of love as a sort of debilitating mental frenzy is so prevalent in Coward. Almost all his major plays, somebody says, I'm going mad or, you know. Mad about the boy was originally staged really as a, a sort of piss take of fandom and the perils of celebrity worship. It was done as lots of young starstruck women singing about a movie star. And there'd be lots of suggestions as to which movie star Coward meant, but really it's just a sort of archetypal heartthrob. It wasn't actually done in this wonderful sultry way that it's usually done now, whether by Dinah Washington or even Adam Lambert, who recorded it a year ago. It was done as sort of silly little schoolgirls, almost out of Gilbert and Sullivan saying that they were mad about the boy, which is interesting. Mad about the boy. It's simply scrumptious to be mad about the boy. I know that quite sincerely. Houseman really wrote the Shropshire lad about the boy. In my English prose, I've done a tracing of his forehead and his nose. And there is on a bright, a certain slight effect of Galahad about the boy. I talk to Rosie Hooper. She feels the same as me. She says that Gary Cooper doesn't thrill her to the same degree. In Can Love Destroy? When he meets Garbo in a suit of corduroy, he gives a little frown and knocks her down. Oh dear, oh dear, I'm mad about the boy. Mad about the boy. Oh no, I'm potty, but I'm mad about the boy. He sets me out on fire with love's desire, in fact. I've got it bad about the boy When I do the rooms I see his face in all the brushes and the brooms Last week I strained me back and got the sack And had a row with dad about the boy I'm finished with Navarro Richard Dix I'm pierced with Cupid's arrow every Wednesday from four till six How 
should enjoy To let him treat me like a plaything or a toy I'd give my all to him and crow to him But also when Coward transferred words and music to Broadway seven years later when it became set to music, he added a verse sung by a young man, which was amazingly daring for the time to show a young man with a blatantly homoerotic crush on this male movie star that the producers would not let him include. And the text of that verse, which also includes a reference to conversion therapy, a converting homosexuals to heterosexuality, this all came to light long after he died, I think. Fascinating, not unlike Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered, which in its original form was a sort of gay love song. And I love that reference to Freud because it shows even Dr. Freud cannot explain those vexing dreams I've had about the boy the young man was meant to sing about this film star. And it shows Coward absolutely au fait with the latest thinking on sexuality, on dreams and what they mean. Coward, this great chronicler of the dazzling surface, wrestling with Dr. Freud, the great chronicler of hidden depth. It's a fascinating lost verse that. Oliver Soden and I will be back next week with more conversation regarding his new book, Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. I do hope you'll join us. Mad about the boy It's pretty funny but I'm mad about the boy He has a gay appeal that makes me feel there may be something sad about the boy walking down the streets his eyes look out at me from people that I meet I can't believe it's true but when I'm blue in some strange way I'm glad about the pay my rent and I can't afford to waste much time if I could employ a little magic that would finally destroy this dream that pains me and enchains me but I can't Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. 
A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.